This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. Welcome back to Cultural Debris. Summer is, I hope, on its last legs. I admit to looking forward to cords, sweaters, and boots this fall. That said, I'm trying to squeeze in as much Madras and Seersucker as I can before summer comes to a close. Some late planted cosmos are starting to bloom, and my hydrangea starts seem to be rooting for the most part. I plan to plant those after Labor Day. I recently returned from a trip to Minneapolis with my colleague Tom Ruby and his neighbor Darren, my first ever visit to the Twin Cities outside of the airport. I was there for the G.K. Chesterton conference, where I also spoke on Russell Kirk and G.K. Chesterton. A fun time was had by all. I also had the good pleasure of meeting Bishop Robert Barron, who was the conference keynote speaker. That was quite an honor for me, as I am a great admirer of him and the work he has done and is doing. It was great to see some friends from last fall's cultural debris excursions. Dale and Laura Alquist were there, of course, along with Adrian Alquist and Josh McCoon. I also got to meet longtime Twitter mutual Percy Grice, a gnome de plume. Mr. Grice kindly gifted me with an anthology of short stories, all centered on books and bookshops, called shelf life. You won't be surprised to learn it wasn't the only book to follow me home. Speaking of cultural debris excursions, you can visit culturaldebrisexcursions.com for information on our upcoming trips to Italy and Spain both this fall and in 2024. The website is new and under construction, but more will be coming soon. We'd love to have you go with us on our small group trips. My guest is not the only one active in theater these days. This month, I was again in a parish play written by one of our priests, Father Al DiGiacomo, who was in a past life a theater professor. Some may recall last year's production on Dorothy Day that he wrote, which I also had a part in. This year's play was on Blessed Father Michael McGivney, the founder of the Knights of Columbus. Father McGivney also produced Parish Theatricals, and so the play had scenes from one of the plays he himself produced some 150 years ago. It was a lot of fun, but I don't expect Broadway will be calling. Since we are on a theater theme this episode, my friend Jane Clark Charles sent me a copy of her new play, Sonnet Les Matins, which features Jean Calvin, Ignatius of Loyola, and Francois Rabelais as characters in a murder mystery in which they themselves are suspects. It is from Wise Blood Books. I am currently reading it, and you can get your own copy. Just check the link in show notes. Our poem is by Oscar Wilde, The Theater at Argos. Nettles and poppy mar each rock-hewn seat. No poet crowned with olive deathlessly chants his glad song, nor clamorous tragedy startles the air. Green corn is waving sweet where once the chorus dance to measures fleet. Far to the east a purple stretch of sea, the cliffs of gold that prisoned Danny and desecrated Argos at my feet.' 
No season now to mourn the days of old, a nation's shipwreck on the rocks of time, or the dread storms of all-devouring fate. For now the peoples clamor at our gate. The world is full of plague and sin and crime, and God himself is half-dethroned for gold. My guest is Laird McIntosh, a longtime Broadway actor, who had the opportunity and privilege to play the Phantom himself in the final performances of The Phantom of the Opera. The Phantom closed in April after 35 years on Broadway and was Broadway's longest-running show. Laird discusses playing the Phantom, his long association with the show, and the unpredictable life of being a Broadway actor. In addition, he and I discuss his interest in vintage Ralph Lauren clothing and the business that sprang from it. Plus, Laird is an art lover and an artist, so we discuss our mutual admiration for the great John Singer Sargent, plus a number of other artists. Please join me as I talk with Laird McIntosh. Laird McIntosh, welcome to Cultural Debris. Thank you, Alan. Great to be here. You clearly are not on tour right now. You seem to be settled in well at home. Uh, are you on a Are you on a break uh, from from any productions right now? I'm on a permanent break. I mean, I in, in the acting business, uh, there there are only permanent breaks. I I um, you're correct. I was on tour for. Uh, well, prior to the pandemic, and then um, I was in uh, production of the uh, Lincoln Center production of My Fair Lady, and that that show was shut down shortly after we started due to, of course, due to the pandemic. But fortunately, we came back um, and resumed the tour. Everybody who was involved got to come back, which was fortunate because a number of tours, a lot of tours, and even a number of Broadway shows once the pandemic really settled into its long, uh, you know, uh, residence, uh, um, they, producers of a lot of shows just shut them down. And casts who had thought they were taking two weeks off due to this COVID outbreak realized they weren't coming back to their jobs. But luckily, our producers kept us and we came back and we, after doing a, I, I think we only did about four months initially, then we had like a year and a half off, and then we came back for more than a year. So we were really, really fortunate. So that was um, sort of 2019 through 2022. Okay. And um, so like everyone else, we experienced an, an odyssey at that time. I mean, I'm talking about uh, me and my wife. Um, uh, and, uh, because she was on the tour with me and she's also an actor and dancer. And, um, but, um, we met working at Phantom of the Opera on Broadway and my wife is the, was the production dance supervisor. The show, as, as you probably know, has closed now after 35 years, which was a, a shock to everybody involved. Um, and um, while we were doing My Fair Lady, she was able to take a leave of absence 
Um, but I had to leave Phantom to do My Fair Lady. So when the pandemic juggled everybody's returns, when those shows started to plot their reopenings, which was a whole logistical um, epic, um, it, you can imagine like a touring company, we were going from city to city one week at a time, sometimes two weeks. If we were lucky, we were somewhere for three weeks or a month with My Fair Lady. And they have to book all of those cities well, 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 sure. years in advance. And so all of these tours were suddenly trying to rebook and reopen after when they thought the pandemic might be opening up. And similarly, Phantom of the Opera reopened on Broadway. Um, but my wife's schedule no longer lined up with the reopening. And so um, we both looked at each other and knew that she really what she had to do was to leave My Fair Lady and go back to Phantom. And um, because of the nature of the relaunch at Phantom, she's very much involved in the staging of the show. And so um, we knew she would be valuable there and needed uh, more than she might have been on My Fair Lady. Um, and so she went back to Phantom, but it meant that we were apart for that year. So I went back out on the road with the show and what we thought was going to be uh, an experience touring around together, we actually ended up being, you know, having a year apart. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, um, um, you know, which is, which is um, part of the life that we all live and we're certainly all used to it in the theater business, but it, it made for, um, you know, I used that word, an odyssey. It made it even more of an odyssey and kind of unexpected adventure. But, um, and then of course that brings us up to the last year. And uh, I was, um, I was, super lucky because I was able to to get back in at the tail end. Once um, it was announced that Phantom was closing, there was some a little bit of juggling of cast here and there, and some people were had some time off, and I, I was able to get back into the show uh, as, a, as a cover and as a, you know, replacing people for um, a month at a time or a couple weeks at a time. So I had a very lucky return to Phantom, um, in the last year in little snippets. And then I had a, um, a unbelievably lucky on the, on the very last day, right? which is another story. But, you know, when the show was closing, um, our principal phantom, unfortunately was, um, exhausted vocally. And his doctor had told him, you actually cannot sing. You have to stop singing really doctor's orders for his, his vocal health. And at the last second, I got put on for the final performance of Phantom as the yeah, Phantom. Which, which is really amazing. Uh, I remember seeing your posts about that and I was like, well, that, that's an amazing thing to happen. I mean, uh, it, it was, it was just a huge, huge honor. I could not believe it. And I was having an out of body experience the whole time. Well, both out of body experience and also, a kind of deeply Zen sort of like I got into um, a focused state like I've never been in in my performing life, <laughs> you know, because the the audience was they actually didn't sell tickets for the final show. The last public show was the night before. And I did that one as well. Um, I did the three shows, uh, three shows leading up to the closing, with the exception of the matinee the day before one of our other guys did that show. Um, 
but um, for the final show, the audience was entirely made up of um, alumni of the show, people who had been in the Broadway production, um, 15 or 20 guys who had played the Phantom, and of course, all of the creatives. So Andrew Lloyd Webber was there and uh, Cameron McIntosh, the producer. And um, so it, it um, to say that it was, you know, there was pressure. Oh, well, I, I, I can't even imagine, especially, I mean, not only having Andrew Lloyd Webber there, but all of these previous uh, phantom actors, I would think that that would be be, be quite a weight uh, because all of them were thinking, well, I, I could do that. Yeah, of course. Well, but actually, I think uh, the... I mean, of course, the room was just completely full of love and and a deep feeling of emotion, I think, for the people, because the show has meant so much to the people involved. It's so unusual that a show would run for 35 years. Of course, it's the longest running show ever on Broadway, and that is extremely unusual. And so um, it had a feeling of a home and a family and long relationships and, of course, all the, the... you know, the ups and downs and the dysfunctional relationships that you have in a family, but also the kind of deep sense of camaraderie and love and affection. And um, it truly, truly felt like um, the end of an era. And I think because it was so unexpected for the cast and crew and orchestra to hear this news, it just came, nobody, I mean, I thought that I would be gone before Phantom was gone. I just thought it would, it would um, continue and continue. But of course, the pandemic hit tourism in New York and still has affected it very, very deeply. So we don't have the international audiences that we used to have. And international visitors to New York might come into the city for the weekend and they might want to see one show. And quite often it was Phantom just because of the... Right iconic place that it has not only as a Broadway show, but also so um, uh, much connected with the sense of Broadway. Right. Um, Or, excuse me, of New York City connected with, you know, Phantom sort of is Broadway New York City in the minds of some people, I think. So... Anyhow, it was, it's, um, I think we're all still in um, withdrawal and um, still adjusting to life. I mean, my wife was in the show for almost 20 years, oh, off wow. and on. She left yeah. and came back and did mm-hmm. took leave of absences and was able to do other shows. But um, so we feel very, very sad about it. Um, oh, I'm sure. But um, did I say that already? Probably. <laughs> probably well, 10 times. I mean, you, you, have, you yourself have had really a, a decades-long relationship with the show going back to yes your, to well i did, first days. did the show because i'm from canada originally and i first did the show in the 90s in toronto there was a production that ran for a decade um in toronto and um uh so you know i began as a, a young man in that show and um then always when i got the opportunity to live and work in the States. I always wanted to be in the Broadway production and I had auditioned for it a number of times, but finally I aged up into another role in the show. And suddenly I was playing this. If you had told me when I was 
25 years old that you're going to be playing the role of Andre, which is an older character in the mm -hmm. show sometime. I wouldn't have believed it. But, uh, you know, I aged up into that role and suddenly was was able to play it. And so that was another incredible gift of, I mean, my life would be completely different if I had not been involved in Phantom. There's a, a lot of other things that I've done in my life, but that I can't deny that that's a big chunk. I mean, when you've done a show for 11 years in total, it's a big, you know, that's a fifth of my life that I've been on stage doing that show and just thousands of performances. So, um, well, so, so having that, that many performances, having that affiliation for so long, I mean, I, I can understand on the one hand that it would feel like home. Uh, it's a comfortable place to be. On the other hand, do actors get bored with that? Do you get tired of doing the same, the same show, the same production time after time? Well, yes, I think you do. And I think that's, that is the challenge of being in a long running show, but I don't think anybody would put in the, the balance and no one would. Um, well, I wouldn't, I never, felt like I complained about that because I was always, especially after I had, I had left the show of my own accord in Toronto and then always forevermore afterwards asked myself, why did I ever leave that show while it was still <laughs> running? I left for a couple of years and had a dry spell and didn't, um, I did if I guess I didn't have a dry spell. I did some other things, but, um, when I, and I then came back into the Toronto production for its last phase similar to what happened in, in um, New York. But um, yes, of course, people get, I mean, I, I would be lying if I didn't say that people get, um, not only do they get bored of doing, of the job of doing the show, but they get, um, it becomes, um, can be mentally exhausting, I think, because the rigorous thing about it is that, you know, you have to, for the audience, you have to make it appear to be fresh, of course. And, um, but it does have to have an absolute machine-like um, operation because you're not you're working, especially in a show like Phantom. There's um, extremely intricate backstage choreography, and um, everybody does their tracks the same way every show. You walk to the same place backstage. You pass the same person in the hallway. You step out of their way at the same time while they run through. You grab this thing from that crew person at the same time. I mean, it's absolutely choreographed. And so there is a um, an order to that that you have to adhere to, and that can become exhausting. But despite that, I think everybody involved in the show, I know everyone would say that they were obviously, you know, so grateful to have been a part of it. There's 10,000 actors in New York who would have killed to have had my job in the last in the last, you know, five or six years. Oh, I'm, I'm sure that's true. I, I mean, you, you talked about Phantom having, I guess, being kind of a flag, for lack of a better word, a flagship uh, Broadway show. I mean, it's it's so tied to Broadway in people's minds. It's so tied to New York in people's minds. Um, and... I guess, is there something that's going to to step in and take that place? Does Broadway as a whole suffer even more because of the, of the lack of having something like Phantom? So, you know, maybe I want to go see Phantom, but it's sold out. Oh, well, I'll, I'll go see something else, perhaps. But 
if you don't have Phantom as that draw, uh, is is that going to have a negative ripple effect um, throughout Broadway in general? Well, actually, I think it might have a bit of a ripple effect in that it was one of the big, it, it does say something about the business of Broadway right now that one of the, that the juggernaut, um, you know, the Titanic of Broadway has sunk. Um, and um, perhaps that's not the right analogy or metaphor, but uh, because it, it didn't sunk, it sink, it was enormously successful. But um, but the fact that it has closed and that the reason that we were given was that it was due to slow business, that was prior to when they announced the closing, then we had basically a year of the show just being like jam packed or mm-hmm. six months or whatever it was. I mean, you couldn't get a ticket. So it was all, all the, all the more strange. The feeling of the closing felt like the opening of the biggest show on Broadway because yeah. the audiences were going crazy. You couldn't get tickets. And, um, uh, you know, I, I'm sure that they could have extended it had they wanted to, but actually the producers felt like they wanted not to be, they wanted to say they were closing on this date and they were going to close on this date. I think they were deeply aware of people saying, oh, they're just doing this to try and drum up ticket sales and they're never going to close. And, and then, but they did, they did close when they said they were going to close. We extended once and for a month or something, but that was it. I'm sure they could have kept going for five more years or indefinitely. Um, but there is a ripple effect, I think, because good business of course, you know, uh, has, has a ripple effect. Um, but there will always be fantastic, wonderful shows on Broadway. I've just been to see a bunch of them. And, um, of course there's, we, everybody in show business wants there to be a newness. And, um, but I think the, even if they open Phantom again on Broadway, it will never be the original production in the majestic theater uh, in that historic house and historic production running in a very, you know, uh, one of our conductors said to me that, well, there will just never be anything like this on Broadway again, in the sense that we had the biggest orchestra on Broadway. Occasionally a show would come in and they'd add one more orchestra player so they could say they had the biggest show on Broadway. <laughs> no, they did. But I mean, continuously Phantom had the biggest orchestra on Broadway it employed a gigantic number of, um, I mean, it had a huge crew, which you have less of now because um, things are automated more and run by computers. And the orchestras are, you know, you, producers now, I think they want a show that has a cast of 12 people and an orchestra, of, it's not an orchestra, a band of five players and, you know, a crew of whatever, it's, it's they, they wanted to, to cut the costs. I guess they have to, but this old fashioned production that was so, um, so highly theatrical and uh, romantic for people is, is gone now. And so I do think that's too bad. You know, we've, we have a rise of, of streaming services and, and now, uh, Apple's releasing, finally releasing this virtual reality, you know, that, that, people have been talking about for a long time is there going to be a place and what is the value for the sort of embodied experience the seeing a real live actor doing a real live performance on a stage uh what value does that bring going forward 
that these other experiences can't can't give us? Well, I mean, I think the value of theater is that you are you're sharing a communal experience with people in the moment. And it only happens once. Of course, it's live. And so when things, whatever happens, you know, the audience is participating, truly participating with the actors. There's a relationship there. And um, uh, of course, we're in, even in my time, in our time, I can see that we're, we, we've gone through a sea change in, in um, well, the title of your podcast, uh, Cultural is it debris? Yeah, cultural debris, correct. I was going to say cultural, <laughs> uh, yeah, remi- cult- remain, cultural remains. I mean, the cultural could, could debris, <laughs> yes, you know, I, um, the world has changed and um, not for the better, I'm sure, with um, the age of, of uh, the internet and social media or a double-edged sword. I mean, in some many ways, you know, incredibly exciting. And I suppose, of course, for the better, but in many ways, I think not for the better. And, um, and it has to do with isolation. I think people are, are much more isolated now. And obviously, those kinds of things that we do as a community, uh, I mean, at least I know, in my mind, are, are better for us, I think. Um, and theater is is one of those things, but also an appreciation of the fine arts is has is, I mean we're in a, I don't think there's any denying that we're in a drastic decline of people's interest in fine art, fine music, and um, you know I mean I'm I'm a art lover and a museum goer and uh, and a and a lover of classical music and a, you know all of those things and i also have bad taste in things but but um i i was lucky and it's it's weird like when i reflect on my youth um uh, i started my career as a ballet dancer in the national ballet of canada and i had sort of a five-year stint where from high school I went to a drama program in the Rocky Mountains in Banff, near my home in Calgary, Alberta, as an acting student. And there were, there were, there was a ballet school at the, at the same school, you know, same time. And I somehow got the bug for that. And in retrospect, looking back on it, I realized that because there was a, an aesthetic um, feeling about the world of ballet that I just absolutely loved. I saw a Balanchine ballet called Serenade, which has Tchaikovsky's, um, I think the music is the Serenade in C or Symphony in C, Serenade in C major is the music. And it's just a sublime piece of music. And the ballet itself is not a plot. It's not a story ballet. It's an abstract ballet. And I was just absolutely flabbergasted by the beauty of this thing. And then, you know, I got into the ballet world and now I realize, thinking back about it, that my daily existence, because when you go into the ballet class, you spend an hour in the morning and you do this ballet bar to begin your day and the pianist is playing all this classical music or ballet music. And then you go and rehearse with classical music and you're in a, you're doing ballet, obviously. So it's, it's a fine art form. And then at night you go and you're working or performing with the symphony orchestra and and at the same time, I was singing in the opera chorus because I was a singer as well then as a, as a young person. 
And so then, you know, like in my other work, I was working with in a very small capacity, but I was a chorister with, with an, like the Montreal Opera and hearing all of that music. So that my early part of my life had this uh, um, nonstop um, surfeit of classical music and um, fine art. And hopefully some of it has stayed with me, but I also realize what I had then and what is gone now. Um, and um, I don't know what I'm trying to say with that, but uh, well, I suppose it has always stuck with me that I try to keep some of that in my life somehow. So now I can, you know, when I was touring around with my fair lady, I had the opportunity to go to every, um, you know, museum across the States, which was wonderful. And just trying to keep some element of that in, in my life. Well, I, I do want to talk to you about that, but hold that thought about the, about the regional museums, because we're going okay. to, we're going to circle back around on that. So if I, uh, find myself or one of our listeners or viewers find themselves in New York or there's a tr there's a touring show what are some shows right now that uh, that you would you would think would be particularly good for for folks to to see to for their own for their own benefit and to also to support the to support the the Broadway uh, production industry well, I absolutely loved New York, New York, which is a new show. Um, loved it. And I loved Some Like It Hot, which is which is a, a new show that's been highly... Um, i trying to think of what... I haven't seen Sweeney Todd yet, but I want to see that. Um, those would probably be the two that I would would really recommend somebody go, go see. Are there any touring uh, productions right now that you, that you uh, are aware of that yeah, I mean, um, well, the tours typically, of course, they go out at the tail end of a run on Broadway or just after a show's had its run on Broadway. And so uh, I'm trying to think, I mean, I know the show that I did, My Fair Lady, it actually, they do something that I don't think they should do, but the producers do it. They, they, they once the show has toured for a while, they, they close the show. It's an equity tour. You know, we're all members of the actor's equity. And then they reopen it, and it's non-equity. Mm. So, and they continue to tour it, but the audiences, there's no change in the advertising. The audiences have no idea they're seeing a non-equity cast. Um, I don't know if they can advertise it anymore as the Lincoln Center production of My Fair Lady, but, um, and uh, without disparaging the, the work of other actors or actors who are coming up in the industry, you know, they're not equity actors and they, um, and there's like these, the cast is made up of people who look like they're, you know, 20 years old playing Henry Higgins and, and, uh, Doolittle and Pickering and all this stuff. So I don't know. I'm, I'm, um, I don't know, uh, Probably I've said too much. You know, if I should, if I should recommend the production of, I have too much of a um, vested interest in my old production of My Fair Lady. But yes, I mean, I know that when we go around on tour, the, um, it's all of the regional theaters have a subscription 
uh, offering that is all the all the tours that are coming around from uh, New York City and and um, uh, but I can't think off the top of my head what what they are right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, so tell tell me uh, a a layman in these things how the equity system works. How is that structured? Well, it's much easier to get into equity now. I think, I mean, post-pandemic, anyone can get into it practically. But you used to, um, you used to, there was, a, there used to be a, a more um, uh, rigorous sort of um, stages that you would have to go through to get your equity card. You'd have to, it was sort of like you can't get in without it, but you can't, you can't, um, you know, you can't work in equity. I mean, if you don't have the card, you can't get in, and but you can't get in if you don't have the card. So, um, well, it, it's a union, you know, and it, it um, is like like any other union is is uh, meant to be um, strength in numbers and be able to. Um, and when we do have a, uh, you know, it is it is we're we're constantly. Um, our, our representatives are constantly going and trying to get better contracts for us working on the road. And, um, and, uh, it's, it's a good thing to be a part of a union rather than a free for all. Um, sure. and so we have, when we're touring, we have, um, there are, there, there's a structure to what, uh, level of hotel you're supposed to be staying in, what your per diem is, um, the pay rates are all structured and um, everything from the flights that we take from city to city, how long the bus ride can be, you know, all of that. It's all, mm -hmm. it's all governed by union rules. Um, and those go, I presume, completely out the window when a production is non-equity. Right. Um, it's funny. It used to be 20 years ago that when a Broadway actor would go on a tour. The reason to go was because it was very lucrative. You would get lured away from Broadway to go on a tour, which um, I guess ostensibly the idea was that it was more difficult task to do, but you'd be compensated better for it. Um, and it's not the case anymore. I mean, touring is not, it's just so difficult to get the competition is so great now. And, and it's, it's, hard to get jobs in the business. So, um, you know, really, really fine actors are, I mean, everybody's trying to go out on these tours now, but it's not like you're, you're getting paid more than Broadway to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, that's all part of the life and the way the business has, has changed. You're listening to the cultural debris podcast. Well, let's shift gears a little bit because I want to talk to you some about uh, vintage Ralph Lauren, which yeah. is uh, which is an interest of yours. And uh, before yes, we we're hit, dressed similarly, here. we are. Well, I I pulled out this this vintage like uh, Ralph Lauren uh, three two roll um, linen, guaranteed to wrinkle, according to the tag. Uh, yes, I love that. So, I love those old labels. So probably what eighties, nineties? Would you eighties? Uh, I would say yeah, probably. Yeah. 80. I mean, I unfortunately I can't see it that well. The guarantee right. to wrinkle, um, I, I cannot see that yeah. label at all. My, my screen is so... Does it have a yellow zigzag stitching around the label? Um, it does not. It does not okay. have a yellow zigzag. 
Well, that's uh, that would in in my opinion that is an earlier uh, label, the zig that type of stitching around it. But um, that would uh, I think the guaranteed to wrinkle thing was definitely an '80s thing. It may have extended into the '90s a bit. I'm not sure, but it certainly is. Um, I think I did. You post that on your Instagram account. Uh, I did. Yeah, it's been a while, and it's I've... got like a window pane on it. Uh, right, it does. Yes. Yeah, I can't even see the window pane on the screen right now, but but yes, I think that looked like a um, an '80s jacket for sure. Yeah, which is was... just what I love. Oh, me too. Uh, this is a, th a thrift store. You know, five dollar. Uh, sport coat uh, trip to the dry oh, cleaners and it and it uh, perked it right up. I'm not I, I typically am uh, sort of opposed to dry cleaners because I think you can you can harm tailored clothing with too much dry cleaning. But mm. sometimes it's good. <laughs> and sometimes yes. sometimes it's nice to freshen things up a little bit. And this yes, one yes especially when you, you don't know where they came from. Absolutely. I do that a lot. Absolutely. And I agree with you. I I don't I don't like to do it with the vintage <clears throat> pieces, but sometimes it is, it's necessary. Sometimes it is. So, well, let me ask you this. When you, uh, travel on your, um, when you travel on your tours, do you, do you ever hit thrift stores around? I know you hit museums, which again, we'll talk about, but. Yes, I did. I did sometimes. Um, I can't remember where or what they were called, but I certainly did. And, uh, or, vintage shops, you know, right. when I could. Um, and, um, I had, when I came back from the, my fair lady tour, I had a, because I was, I'm, I'm upstate right now in our, we have a little house upstate, uh, upstate New York. And, but we also have an apartment in New York. And so of course, when I was away on the tour, my wife was in the New York apartment and the house was empty for a while or, uh, it wasn't empty, but it was empty of us. And, um, I was sending things back from the tour because one of my, um, uh, I guess, you know, one of, you could say one of the habits that was like soothing me while I was out on tour was continuing to collect, to collect vintage polo. And so I was having it sent back to the apartment. And then when I came back and my wife, God bless her, was, Polly was bringing all these things in from the doorman and they, um, there was a wall of boxes that was like the final scene of Raiders <laughs> of the Lost Ark when I got home. And I'm not kidding. It went floor to ceiling. Um, but uh, yes, I did in, enjoy looking around and trying to... That, that of course, is... I think if you're an inveterate collector, and I can see just by looking at your collection of books behind you that you are, and I certainly am... Possibly guilty of that. <laughs> yes. I mean, the as you know, the 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 thrill of discovery and the excitement of finding something rare is is really fun and that's been one of the things that has fueled my um polo collecting you see it began because when i was a, a teenager in my hometown of calgary this was back in the 80s the polo stores were franchised and so individual uh business men or business women owned them and uh, operated them. And there was a beautiful one that was in my hometown of Calgary, if you can believe that. But there were a number peppered across Canada. Mm -hmm. 
And there was an absolutely gorgeous one in Toronto. I actually worked there briefly when I lived in Toronto, but I worked for quite a while, a couple of years in the one in, in when I was a teenager in Calgary. First thing I walked in and was like, just like a window had been opened in my mind seeing this store. And I kind of, it was happened to be across the street from my high school and I would hang around on my lunch break in this polo store. Um, and then I can't remember if it was my like grade 12. I think it was when I was in grade 12 or just after high school, I started working there and I took a year off and worked there full time. Um, and, uh, so this seed was planted and then in later life, um, I developed this gigantic sort of feeling of nostalgia for um, that era in my life or that kind of sweet spot in my life and the clothes that Ralph was, you know, creating in that period of the 80s, which I happen to think, like I happen to coincide with what I now feel was and what I wrote about in a blog post once, you know, that I called the golden era of of Ralph Lauren production, which is sort of like, you know, 1984, 83, 84. And for me, even more specifically pinpointed on 84, when the, the, the spring line was a, an epic campaign called Safari, and the fall was an equally epic um, and beautifully shot campaign called Thoroughbred. Um, that I just, and it was right then that I was in the store and, um, you know, so I can remember those catalogs we had, I still have them and, um, it's, it struck a chord for me, but what's been fun about doing, you know, starting to share this, this interest in collecting and, and occasionally being able to put a piece up and have somebody, you know, take it off my hands is that I've realized that there is a worldwide interest in um, these vintage Ralph Lauren pieces. So uh, was that Safari, uh, w did that coincide with the Safari uh, cologne and the, the Safari line that he released or was that, were those so separate? That No, that predated it. The, the Safari cologne and perfume, I believe the perfume was launched first and I think it was around 90, something like that, okay. or it might have been 1992. I don't... Uh, so it I'm was not... a little bit later. Yes, it was later. And I believe the perfume came first and then the cologne for men. And they did a beautiful line of... Uh, I'm actually very interested, of course, in all those fragrances that Ralph Lauren has done as well, because time has has now... Uh, you You... I don't know if you're involved at all with the fragrance community, but like like every other niche interest that you could possibly imagine, like if I had an interest in, you know, shoes that were made in Maine, um, yes. you could get onto a um, group on online that is interested in shoes made in Maine or um mugs you know wedgwood or something like that I, like it's I, I pulled out this vintage rough oh yeah mug for you oh, so. i love it that's yeah, thoroughbred a... <laughs> that has a box called thoroughbred i believe mm -hmm. i love yeah. it so yeah the no the the safari was a um uh you know that was the name they gave to a, a campaign as a, a line that they did and um 
I believe it was shot in 1983 and uh, famously, or at least interestingly, in the Ralph Lauren lore, it was not shot in Africa. They filmed it in Hawaii. I believe they shot it on Kauai. I could be wrong about that, but I know it was it was done in Hawaii. And Ralph famously said, I've never been to Africa. This is my, you know, kind of, uh, like everything else he did, it, it was a... Um, uh, his his version his fantasy of it and i don't say that in any denigrating way i mean sure. i say that with admiration it's he, kind of uh, a vision of the way i guess he thought it ought to be <laughs> like this you know yes his, his vision of of the english countryside his right his, his all of these different uh worlds that he created he was really he was really kind of a an early world builder in that sense yes i think it also um it was something that early on showed to me Ralph Lauren in his, his, in his absolute prime of his powers doing two completely different uh, feels or looks or whatever you want to call it. Because Thoroughbred was the English countryside and they shot that. This was also before um, he launched his home uh, lines. And so they shot it in an English country home, um, and the surroundings were a genuine English country home. Uh, whereas nowadays they will film, uh, you know, he'll he'll do a campaign, but it is more the the surroundings, at least in my opinion, are often naturally they're meant to show his his homewares that he sells as well. But this had the thoroughbred campaign had an incredibly beautiful to me, sort of look to it. And, um, but this would just be the same as like, if you were growing a teenager in the nineties, you probably would cra be crazy about all the, um, uh, what's that stuff called the stadium stuff and snow beach and all that sort of thing, which is, is not my cup of tea, but, um, that thing that Ralph Lauren did in the eighties, was just is is just ingrained in my in my mind, or it's one of the things that's ingrained in a very nostalgic way in my mind. Um, well, you'll you'll get no argument from me about holding the eighties up as uh, sort of the, the pinnacle of the pinnacle of time periods. So that's, uh -huh. I, I I also come from the eighties as you do. So right. Um, uh, so you have launched then, uh, and uh, we should mention Eric Twardzik, who who wrote the article. Uh, a couple of years ago about this, and I'll link that in show notes so people can see. And Eric, of oh, course, thank was, you. A guest, was a guest uh, on an earlier episode of, a few months ago uh, of Cultural Debris. But he wrote about your uh, Instagram, I guess your vintage, is it vintage PRL? Was that right? Correct. And I will also link that. People can hop over there and see it. But you show uh, and also sell uh, some, I guess, some overflow from the collection uh, that you've that you've accumulated. How did you did? Was it simply I've got to clear out some of this stuff? Was that how it was that how it started? Well, it's um, yes. I during the <laughs> pandemic. I said to Polly, I'm going to, you know, sell some of these things on eBay that I have here and try to um, go through my collection and, you know, part with a few pieces. And then I realized, then I kind of enjoyed, you know, putting them on a mannequin and, and photographing them and 
putting a necktie on a on a jacket and and kind of playing around with the the look of it and then i realized oh i'm i'm making a little profit on these things and um suddenly you know like a light went off in my head and i said i'm going to and i turned to my wife and said i'm going to start buying these things <laughs> to flip them you know to i mean flip them is a um um cynical way of putting it i'm i'm going to buy these things to but yes to resell them um but it it's not cynical because i absolutely love searching for you know and trying to find really good old pieces um and the thing that i really enjoy about the vintage prl now is i no longer look for stuff just in my own size you know what i mean so i buy right. something if it doesn't fit me or it doesn't look like it's going to fit me um and um uh but then so you know and so i at some point decided maybe i'll just try to to um sell a few things via instagram and communicate with sellers directly rather than putting them on on ebay or some other you know thing online um and that was merely because i wanted to um uh, well frankly i wanted to avoid having to pay the fees on sure. ebay um and um and i was amazed that complete strangers would send me money via paypal i mean i would put up a tweed jacket and then somebody would say well how do i pay for it and i would sheepishly say would you are you okay with sending me the money into my paypal account and they'd just say sure you know they the people were and now that i've done it enough somebody can look on my instagram and see that it's i mean at least i hope they will trust that it's obviously a legit thing and i don't really get anybody who is concerned about sending money that way so although of late i have realized it's um the way i do it is i put a piece up and then i ask that the person direct message me and then i send a file with all the measurements and the a description of the item and the photos and um there's a lot of going back and forth and discussion that would be um allayed if i had what's the platform called it's something like bid pay or something like that you know in other words if i had a a uh, online store which which is obviously what what anybody does who um you know has a vintage business or something like that online right. so i'm i'm very seriously considering doing that and i'm also considering i mean i'm quite interested in the idea of having a shop myself because currently i have um you see when i went back on the road then with my fair lady and and then subsequently getting back into phantom i've stopped doing the the thing online so that you know that there's there's a lot of um stops and starts with sure. my vintage prl and occasionally i get a message from someone saying are you still there like are you still <laughs> you know are you going to be listing stuff again and currently i have got about 50 pieces that i've photographed um and measured and they're all ready to go i just haven't put them up yet i'm i'm very soon to be putting new things up online so i'm excited about that but i mean i have a thousand you know i've i've had to actually um go outside of my house and rent a um i mean i have a space now that i've rented to store it's not a storage space it's like a studio that i've rented to store and photograph all the stuff and there's so much of it um so i have to sell it now at some point because right. it's <laughs> i've invested quite a lot of of uh funds into it but 
Um, I must say, I really, really love it and really enjoy it. And it's, uh, it's, it's true. There is nothing like the thrill of, uh, finding something that's really, really good. Oh, that, that is absolutely the the case. And that's, that's why you always keep going back, even when you, you absolutely don't need anything. Um, if I never purchased another thing, I would be, you know, certainly more than fine, but it's the, the treasure hunt aspect of it. I can go into this shop where, you know, it doesn't look like there's anything and, uh, and I can, and I can find the treasure that's there, you know, and, Mm -hmm. um, and you don't every time, but, and you won't every time, but sometimes you do. (laughs) And, uh, and, and in a sense, there are times when you've, you've rescued that piece, you know, it's something that, that very well would have, could have been lost forever and and you've saved it. So there's, at least you tell yourself that, but I think it's also true <laughs> that uh, uh, that you do it. So uh, I, I will tell those who are interested to absolutely check out the uh, Instagram account because it's beautifully done. Uh, and if nothing else, even if they don't purchase anything, they can get a lot of, uh, of style inspiration, I think, from the things you put together and uh, how you've conceived of it. And uh, Well, maybe, I really appreciate that. Thank you so Ralph much. Maybe Ralph needs to hire you to come in and I love that. I mean, I'm going up to uh, Canada for um, a couple weeks shortly um, to help my mother out with some things. But um, at the end of the month, I will be listing uh, I have all, a slew of new pieces up. So new, I will certainly pieces. tell people by the by the time that they are seeing this to absolutely check it out because there may be oh some great new right there may be some new new things hitting. Well, the, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about, and I didn't want to let you go before we had a chance to chat about it, was was your interest in art, which you've alluded to, and we can also see behind you uh, some of that. But yes. you are a particular devotee of John Singer Sargent, and, and I will say sort of helped inspire me to explore him myself. Now I have a big stack of John Singer Sargent oh, wow. books, uh, and, yeah. and I, I pulled this out, which... Uh, Oh Which yeah, that's I will show you that. Yeah, my my. I also have a Vanity Fair print uh, obsession, so this is a and I like Max, and so this is yes. Max and Vanity Fair and John Singer Sargent all rolled into one. So it's a great, yes. uh, it's a great piece. Yes, that's a wonderful portrait. I have that too, and I also love Vanity Fair prints and have a bunch of them. Although I've collected a lot of them just in their you know, unframed state. And I don't have them. I actually just bought like about 10 of them the, like a week ago. Um, but, um, I've always been, um, well, I first saw them in a Ralph Lauren ad. There was a line he did called cricket in -hmm. about 80. It was, uh, maybe 82, something like that, 83. And he used uh, a trio of the Vanity Fair cricket Mm -hmm. prints in, in one of the pictures. But, um, yes, I love those, those, uh, those uh, caricatures, portraits, and um, and that sergeant one is is terrific. And there's another I don't have. There's another beer bomb um, portrait of sergeant, which is him like kind of inside profile and sort of arching his back. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that one? And that I think, one I don't. I, yeah, I I don't have that, but I think I have seen picture. Uh, yes, you know, photo yeah. pictures of it online. Yeah, well, Max sergeant... loved to love to uh, illustrate his friends. And, uh, so he's, he's got so many wonderful, uh, illustrations out there. Yes. 
Um, I have a couple um, beer bomb books as well. Um, Zulika Dobson and some of his essays. Main, I think it's called Mainly on the Air, radio thing, pieces mm-hmm. that he did. Yeah, I don't have that one. Yeah, um, but that novel, Dobson, is is sublime. I love it. Um, I've only read it once, but it's a great, uh, great piece. And um, so, how did you, uh, I guess, become initially become interested in Sargent, and then I know you've toured around and and hit all of these museums, uh, finding Sargent pieces that are that are in yes. maybe what we might consider obscure places, but but they're yes, out yes. Well, um, in sometime around 1995 or 1996, I was in a bookstore that's no longer there in Toronto called David Mervish Book uh, Bookshop, and was a beautiful art and bookstore. And I saw that great big, I've got it back here, the big, um, somewhere here behind me. Anyway, the giant sergeant monograph. I believe the author is Carter Radcliffe, and it's familiar to a lot of sergeant aficionados. It has a big, beautiful, you know, it's a large book, and it has the portrait of Lady Agnew on the cover, and just sergeant written across the top. And I'd never heard of him, but I saw the picture, and also something about the the uh, design of that cover was so striking with, with the portrait. And I just, I bought the book and immediately became you know, very, very, um, taken with Sargent and interested in him. And, um, then in the, also in the late nineties, I bought a letter of Sargent's, you know, a handwritten letter from, um, a manuscript dealer in, um, the UK. I think it was John Wilson manuscripts. I believe that was the name of the, the dealer. Um, and I was like completely amazed that you could buy a letter that Sargent had written. So I was holding this letter that he had touched. And, uh, you know, I'm one of those people that gets very excited by weird things like that. So I started trying to collect his letters. And in the early, in the nineties, in the, my recollection of it was that in the early days of eBay, it was not on, you know, I collected quite a few um, and that seems to have slowed down or dried up now. I infrequently see a sergeant letter on eBay. And when I do, it is too expensive. You know, they're really expensive to buy now. But of course, that was before there was a there was an epic um, retrospective of sergeant's work at the National Gallery in Washington. And that would have been in the late 90s, I believe, or maybe around 2000, something like that. It was around that time. And that, I think, kicked off a, I don't know, it seemed to me anyway, that that kicked off a resurgence of interest in Sargent um, that put up the prices on even things like his letters, which of course is just the very hem of the garment that I can just touch would be acquiring letters. I did buy two drawings. Um, and I was able to show those. I had the opportunity to meet Richard Ormond a few years ago, who is the, uh, the great or perhaps it is great, great nephew of John Singer Sargent, um, Sargent's um, 
sister was married a man named Ormond. And Richard Ormond um, is now the, um, I believe he's an octogenarian and is now the, the um, I believe, you know, considered to be the world expert on John Singer Sargent. And he is the author of, um, or the, the ch chief influence behind the catalog raisonné, which has been completely done over the last 20 or 25 years with the exception, I think, I don't know if there's going to be a final volume that is, I believe he is currently working on trying to assemble all of the existing charcoal portraits, which is, of course, what Sargent did after, um, I believe it was 1907 or around 1907 that Sargent sort of declared, I'm stopping commissioned oil portraiture and devoting, I'm basically retiring and devoting myself to my own work for my own pleasure, watercolors and oil paintings, but you know, landscapes, etc. Um, and you know, there was such a de insatiable demand for his portraits that he agreed, I guess, to do um, charcoal drawings, charcoal portraits, which he could complete in one sitting. And um, but if I'm not mistaken, there's an enormous, like something like 1,700 or 1,200 oh, or 2,000. Wow. Yeah, I mean, he did. Um, he I have did. a volume of, of some of his por charcoal por portraits, but of course, it's nowhere near that many of them. Yes, there was recently an exhibit at the, um, oh, the name of the museum. I went to it in, it's just slipping my my mind I right think, now yeah i think that's in, probably in the catalog that i have yeah it's i'm looking i've got a wall of his books here and it's right behind me but anyway i don't i can't pick it out right now but anyway that was it wasn't the whitney but it was the um it was downtown here in new york it was a beautiful exhibit and um yes and i believe mr ormond um was the curator of that exhibit uh, i know he was and um that was a good indication of the kind of, and the, I mean, the charcoal portraits are absolutely sublime. I mean, his skill, his gift as a draftsman had to be unparalleled. I can't think of, I mean, artists forever will be marveling at Sargent's. Um, I mean, it was a, it was a gift from God, you know, he, he, um, he was like a Barishnikov of, of, painting or I don't know who you would compare it to, but just extraordinarily, I mean, supernaturally talented as, as a, um, as an artist. And yeah, I, I, I have <laughs> to agree with you about that. But of course, you know, he, he also opens up the door to a lot of other wonderful artists who I, I appreciate a great deal from that same time period. Of course you have, have Whistler is probably the, the most well-known, but also, uh, in, in different countries, you had Soroya, you had Zorn, you had Baldini. All those guys were doing this beautiful work, uh, you know, overlapping, not exact contemporaries, but but it's a similar approach uh, and and beautiful style. Yes. Oh, I, I love all of those artists that you just just mentioned. And uh, there's a wonderful account, and I I could not find where I had it but it's it's um 
the Franco Maria Ricci. Do you know those publications? Those those magazines that uh, were published FMR. They did a wonderful oh, okay. volume on on Boldini uh, that I have. There's like a slipcased you know book oh, nice. that they yeah. they did on him. But in one of the magazines, they they reproduced an account of uh, that they translated into English of a um, art student or art lover who went to visit Boldini at his studio in, in old age. And um, it's a beautifully evocative um, uh, story of, you know, going into this studio of this, this great artist and canvases everywhere. And I mean, he was another magician. Boldini was, I love Boldini. In fact, I have a, um, uh, I have a Boldini signature that I bought um, some time ago, like while I was collecting all the Sargent letters, and um, it, uh, you know, it's a it's a, it's a letter written in another hand. I think in the in the hand of his wife, who was considerably younger than him, and I believe was sort of his took care of his business affairs. And then it's got his beautiful signature at the bottom that's so familiar from the portraits because he had that highly stylized way of writing his name. Um, but yeah, I love Boldini and, um, and Zorn and Soroya and also the other, um, early 20th century and mid mid war, um, portrait painters, um, Orpen, um, you know, I, I love that. And, and as you say, it's, it's not only a window into other artists, but it's, it's a window of course, into the time and the period and undeniably what I love about the, those painters and their pictures is the style of their painting and the style of the people in the, in, in the pictures. They're so beautiful to look at. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, people, I think, really, I mean, had a sense that life was valuable and that, you know, worth living and... Um, that dressing with a sense of occasion meant that the day was important and something, um, you know, that there was a reason to put your best self forward. Um, and you really see that in those, those pictures, I think, and in the way people took the care to dress themselves. Now you, you have shared uh, a few times some of your own... Um of your own painting that you've you've worked on uh i know you did oh, a, yes. a, cop, a copy of a munnings i believe and yes you you painted a a, a self it had a self-portrait of yourself in a in a top hat i believe so. yes that's right yes sounds very uh, it sounds very showy the way you just yes, with, but it's true. well it is true it, uh, no the they're, they're beautiful was... pieces i i mean it's i i say it with envy i would love to be able to to uh to paint with with uh you know, such a an, an evocative way. There was a portrait that I saw um, that really inspired that that self portrait, and it was. Um, now I'm going to. Um, now I'm really going to forget. I put it on my Instagram account, but um, who was the actor that was not in the James Cameron Titanic movie, but in the old 1950s A Night to Remember? Uh, famous British actor with a little mustache. Um, yeah, I, I, I famous I, I actor. Anyway, that gentleman. It, it was a there was a portrait of him, 
that I have not been able to see in person, although I tracked it down. It's in New York, in somewhere in the archives of the, the New York Theater Historical Society or something like that. And I did get in touch with someone there who was able to send me an image of the painting, uh, rather a, a um, color image of it, a small color image. Um, and what struck me, you know, it's a portrait of a man in, in white tie, but in it's indoors, he's seated in a chair, but he's wearing his top hat. And for some reason that made me indoors, you know, and I thought that was kind of striking. So um, somehow I thought I'm going to do a, an homage to that picture. And then it kind of ended up looking like a picture of me in, uh, in the, in the, in the, uh, the ball scene from My Fair Lady, because I wore the same, same outfit, but yeah. And then the Munnings painting, I absolutely adore Alfred Munnings. And, um, um, that was an epic, you know, like I, I copied that picture within an inch of its life. And so it took forever to do, um, but it's over the fireplace here, you know, uh, I mean, nothing says, you know, uh, nothing says humility, like putting, <laughs> doing, having a giant self-portrait and then putting this painting over the fireplace. But, um, it has been, I am moving slowly but surely towards, you know, my own work and um, doing my own paintings. But it's been a real learning experience for me to copy pictures, which of course is one of the traditional ways of trying to learn, or at least when you're trying to be, to be self-taught. That's another fantasy of mine, like I would love to be a painter and... Um, well, it seems uh, that you are one. To to be one, you 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 just paint. <laughs> yes, that's right. But I think uh, real painters paint nine to five every day, all day long, um, and that's how you do it. And uh, I don't. My interests are too divided to to focus enough on it. But um, but I do love it and enjoy it, and I do I do harbor a fantasy of of perhaps doing it more. Um, in you the can future. be a uh, you can be a painter in the in the lineage of Winston Churchill. He um, yes, had other right. things going on too. So, but uh, you know, right. And don't you wish you had started collecting Churchill paintings like forty five years ago? <laughs> I think they're they're completely untouchable now as well. Oh, but I'm sure. I think there was a time not too long ago when you you could buy one, um, but the, those things have all become so expensive but and that's another story i mean the the art collecting world is is also really interesting to me and i do it in the smallest possible way um but um but i do really enjoy it as well occasionally you can buy some you know some some uh i would don't want to say minor work but uh uh something by a good artist you know you can get something just touching the hem of the garment right. <laughs> you know. well and there there are lots of pieces out there I, I had an earlier episode uh some while back with with uh william newton who's a an art critic and we discuss and he collects um art particularly from spain uh but we discussed you know the value of having art in your home and it's not you know you you and i are both museum uh appreciators but at the same time 
it is valuable to have real art around you. And it's not something that that should simply be a thing I go see, but rather something that that surrounds me and that I live with. And I feel like that that's art at its best, not to say that obviously some of the great masterpieces are going to be in museums, understandably so, but I, I, I can see behind you, you have beautiful art and it's, uh, it's something that you live with and you see and you appreciate. And obviously you love those, love those pieces. Yes, I absolutely love it. That bust that you can, I'm it's right there. I don't know if it's in your camera view. I'm touching the edge of it here now. No, sorry, in my room. Do you <laughs> oh, see it there? Yes, or is it yes. out of Oh, view? I can't. No, it's out of view. Yes. That's that's my friend, Michael Shane Neal, who's a wonderful oh, painter. Yes. Do you uh-huh. see that? Yes. Mm-hmm. It's it's difficult to see back there. but And Rick Casali, the, the sculptor, just made that. And he has a, he has a way of um, the original, you know, done in clay actually gets destroyed eventually. But he has a way of reproducing them using a contemporary sort of method of um, it's like marble dust that they're able to, you know, get into a into the mold. And um, it weighs a ton. But I was so uh, taken with that piece that he did of of my friend Shane that I said, I have to get one of those. And this will be, you know, I love the idea when you read about Sargent. And uh, actually, I have. In my collection of Sargent ephemera, I have um, one of the original catalogs of the sale of his, uh, the contents of his home and studio on Tite Street, you know, on, on his death. And it lists everything that was oh, in wow. his possession that was sold. Um, <clears throat> one of them, there's one catalog that is just his books. And I have a number of Sargent books here that he owned with his book plates in them. Um, but one of them was all his artworks and furnishes, studio furnishings and whatnot. I mean, he lived in the same building or the two buildings that were his his studios in London. Um, but one of the things that impressed me so much, and you can see in some of the wonderful photographs of those evocative photographs of Sargent's beautiful studio that he had, were that he had the works of other artists in his possession. And I'm sure that they, you know... He gave a painting to Boldini, who gave him a painting, and Elieu gave him a drawing, and he has one. But you can see them in some of his, in the photographs of his studio. And I love that idea of, not that I'm an artist who can give a work of art to another artist, but being able to acquire a contemporary uh, work of art that is of... um, uh, having a portrait or a bust like this of, of a friend of mine, I really, I really loved that I- idea. So I was I was able to get that piece from Rick Casali, um, and actually the original that that he did just won uh, the top prize, I believe, for sculpture at the um, uh, International Society of Portraiture conference that was just held a month ago. So I was really pleased about that. I have a, uh, you know, a version of it here. Yeah, it's, 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 you know, it's a, it's a beautiful thing to have. And it's finding uh, ways to acquire those things. And, and it, you know, it can be expensive. It doesn't have to be expensive. We were talking about Vanity Fair uh, prints. Those are, you know, over a century old, but not at least uh, most of them, not that expensive to acquire, really. You can 
you can find them pretty readily. Yeah, and they are wonderful to live with. I, I love them. I love how you have one propped up there on your bookcase behind you. Yeah, I, I've got so many that I have to find places to put them, and then I still have more that aren't right. up. So or, <laughs> or hanging there is it? I love I love a picture hanging on a a uh, over a bookcase that always looks. Uh, uh, yes, I, I I agree. I always thought it, I always think it's a nice look. Some some sometimes it has to be moved in order to actually access the books, but yeah, uh, but that's not 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 too much trouble. So well, on, now, on your, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was going to ask you. I I was hearing on your podcast that you are going off to Salzburg, is it? Well, so that that was a trip. We So last fall, we did our first trip to Genoa, Italy, and uh, took two different groups of people. Be- uh, incredible place. I don't know if you had a chance to go to Genoa. You should go no. with us. But it's a, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful place. So uh, we were, uh, we're, we're doing Genoa again, and also a week in Tuscany prior to that. We're doing Siena, and um and florence for a week and then we're going they're going back to genoa for a week and so people can either do one week or both weeks uh we do super small groups of uh my friend uh tom ruby and i are the ones who kind of direct those but we have then six people uh we could you know depending on couples we might flex up to seven or so but usually we focus on six people so it's a super small group you have a lot of flexibility that way you can go do things that big tour groups can't do. Um, so our hope had been to do a, um, a trip to Salzburg and, uh, and also to Oberammergau and the area around there in the Alps. Alas, interest was, was more at this point in Italy. So we're going back to Italy for sure this fall. And, uh, perhaps, uh, we're looking at maybe Spain next year. I would love to do the trip to Salzburg, but, uh, but we've got to round up the people who want to go. So, oh well, my uh, my my dear friends in Toronto who they run a Baroque opera company called Opera Atelier, and they they perform internationally. Um, and he is it's a husband and wife who are the director choreographer, and and they have worked recently in Salzburg, uh, mm. and um, just said it was absolutely the most uh, refined, sublime, civilized place they've ever been. They just adored it. Um, well, a few, a few historic- years ago, a few years ago, my wife, who uh, sings in just sort of a- amateur choirs, uh, her her choir toured, uh, did a European tour, and they she she was able to sing in Salzburg, and it was her probably her favorite place that, that she went to and she loved right. it. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's so, that's so neat. Well, I do hope you get to go sometime. I'd love to go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let, just let us know. <laughs> Maybe. Love that. Exactly. <laughs> well, I, I've, I've really enjoyed uh, the conversation and you having time to, uh, to talk to me. We could probably go on all day, but I know you've got, to, you've got a trip to Canada to get ready for. That's right. And, well, uh, we could go on all day and uh, hopefully we will at some point. We'll, we'll meet yeah. up in person sometime. And I would love to, when you were in Cincinnati, not too long ago, maybe you can make it back there. We can hit the Ohio bookstore and view and yes. go to the Taft and the Cincinnati right. uh, Museum of Art, which are, which are excellent art museums. Yes. And I was in the Ohio bookstore. And in fact, I saw a book there that I subsequently called back, you know, six months later and asked if they had and it had sold so i didn't get uh, it 
but um, I did buy a number of things from them, and that what a great bookstore. Oh, just like a, a block bookstore. away from the theater that we performed in there. And you just keep going up up stories of yes. books and the, the lights come on and it's, right. It's right. Yes, run. that's right. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a fun place. And the well, book Larry, binding downstairs. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. You can, they'll even, they, I mean, you can buy the little uh, leather bookmarks that they have and they have imprinted on there. And uh, Fantastic. So it's, it's, a, it's a fun place. It's, it really is like a step back in time. Uh, there aren't many bookstores like that around these days. No, that's so true. Laird McIntosh, I very much appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. We've, uh, you, you are conversant in many topics that I'm interested in conversing about. So I've, I've enjoyed the chat. Yes, Alan, and we didn't even touch them all, I don't think. So we'll, we'll get together sometime. But thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks a lot. All the best.